0: As I'm going to read today from John chapter 17, we've been looking at this long prayer of Jesus shortly before the cross, come to the conclusion of it today, and we'll go back to John again. We'll look at other things the next few Sundays in the Christmas season, but in January, I hope we will pick up with the betrayal and arrest of Jesus and move into the last stage of John's gospel. Listen as I read verses 20 through 26 of John 17. Jesus has been praying for his disciples. He calls them those the Father had given him. We pick him up here. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Father, once more, these words of our Savior speak of things that are deep and high. May we hear your message to us. May we be encouraged and directed in the faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The other day, because of two deaths occurring in our church, I was sitting down and looking through some things, and I got into a mood to reminisce and was trying to realize how many funerals have I had for folks since I've been pastor of Westminster. You might think that's a not a very uplifting subject, but I was doing some counting. I keep a record and have a folder that contains every time, you don't realize probably, but a pastor receives a sheet from the funeral home with information on the individual when we lead a service. So I have a folder of those things, and I was realizing that I was very close within a couple of it being the 250th funeral I've had for individuals in the years I've been pastor here of a large congregation. And when you add 20 years of ministry before that and about 125 before I came here, that means I've been nearly 400 people that I have said an earthly farewell or led a farewell to them when they left this life. That just gives you something to measure. Perhaps the downstairs, our our 8 o'clock congregation is usually around 400 people. We don't have the balcony open, but uh, it's nicely fills about like you're filled now in the downstairs. Just think, if those folks who are indeed living souls today were also living in bodies and they were here to worship with us, where would we put them? We'd have to put up a lot of seats, wouldn't we? It would be standing room only of the saints from heaven who would rejoin us. And you would recognize many faces as I look through that folder full of 250 forms. It was very moving to me because I loved those people. I was their pastor, and I wasn't indifferent, I don't think, to any of them. They nearly all were people who professed faith in Christ. And someone might say to me, well, you talk about them as if they're still real, and they are. But maybe someone would ask, well, where are those people now They don't have bodies like we have right now that are visible that we could shake their hand or give them a hug. Where are they? What are they experiencing? I would choose to give you the excellent biblical answer that is contained in our text today in John 17, verse 24, and tell you in just a few words, they are with Christ forever. It has taken about 14 messages by my count and several months for us to work carefully through four chapters of John 14, 15, 16, and 17, what scholars usually call the farewell discourse of Jesus, saying goodbye to his earthly disciples, the 11 that were left after Judas had departed. And he has addressed their original problem or issue that was spoken in the very beginning of chapter 14, that they were troubled in spirit. They were upset. They were confused. Jesus was leaving them. They didn't understand that. Why was this necessary? Where was he going? What would happen to us? And many other questions. And he addressed it right away in 14.1 saying, let not your hearts be troubled. And he went on from there. I'll give you just a really quick synopsis of some of the things we've seen. And this isn't all that's in these four chapters, but he told them that his departure had a good purpose of preparing a heavenly home for them. He told them that it was faith in himself alone that was the way to reach that home. He told of the Holy Spirit who would come to fulfill and and in a sense replace him in his role as their constant companion. He said that they were inseparably bonded to him so that they had no life in themselves except From him, beginning of chapter 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He said further, their mistreatment by the unbelieving world only proved that they belonged to him because that's how the world treated him. He said that the Holy Spirit would reveal more about him through them and they would record that in writing. And he said that their sorrow at losing him would be transformed into a great and lasting joy when they saw him again. Well, that's not all that was in these chapters. But now we've come to chapter 17, and he has prayed this lengthy prayer. Where exactly it happened, we're a little unsure, frankly. We know that they had left the upper room before this because that is uh, said at the end of chapter 14. He said, let us rise and go from here. Were they already in Gethsemane where he would next pray, Father, not my will but yours be done? If not, they were close or they were on the way there when he prayed this prayer of chapter 17. And he first, in the first five verses, prayed that he, for himself, that he would receive the glory that he had as the only Son of the Father. And then from verse 6 onward, he began to pray for those people you gave me out of the world, the disciples. And he specifically prayed for things for them. But now in verse 20, we've seen this prayer take a a small turn, not away from disciples, but not necessarily just the disciples standing in front of him. Because he now begins to pray, as he says, not only for these before him, but also those who will believe in me through their word. He knew the witness of the New Testament and of the apostles— would go to reach many more who would be gathered in to the faith. And isn't this telling us as Christians today that we are the people he was praying for? We can look at this and say this wasn't just for immediate friends there in front of him, but ourselves who would believe in future generations. Earlier in John 10, Jesus had said something that led right to this. He said, I have other sheep not of this fold, I must bring them also, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. He was alluding to the Gentiles and to the wider reach of the gospel beyond just the immediate uh, people who were following him at that moment. He saw, you could say, centuries ahead. His divine omniscience was not removed from him, and he knew that the Word of God would be written through these disciples who we later call apostles… And that Word would reach and bring a tremendous harvest in. He knew our names before He went to the cross for us. Isn't that wonderful to think about? He prayed for you, and He prayed for me. What did He ask the Father on our behalf? Well, I'm singling out two primary points from this last section. One is this, His request for true Christian unity. And secondly, his request of the Father that we, his people, his church, would see his glory when we finally come to dwell with him in glory. First of all, Jesus prayed for us to discover true unity with all genuine gospel believers. The keynote is verse 21 and 22. He prayed that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they might also be in us so the world would believe you have sent me. When true Christian unity is visible through the lives of disciples, the world pays attention. Now, verse 21 is often a proof text by people who Bemoan many divisions they see in the great universal Christian church. And there have been many different unity movements, ecumenical movements, trying to reach across denominations because people say, oh, this is a great sinful thing that we have all these denominations, each stressing their own perhaps small distinctives. And we have Presbyterians and Baptists and Lutherans and Greek Orthodox and Episcopalians. And what do we need all this for? Do away with it. We should all just be Christians. When I was in seminary in the 1970s, there was a movement abroad throughout America called the Consultation on Church Union, C-O-C-U. And uh, people had a good time making fun of it who were opposed to the movement because they said it was a cuckoo movement koku. But it tried to say we should do away with denominations, basically, and all come together. It failed. It fell apart. But the problem with so many of these ecumenical endeavors is that they seek after an external reorganization without first securing the deep spiritual and doctrinal unity of heart and mind that would be based on God's true revelation. I can give you an easy example. And it's one that I, I don't single out for any kind of personal agenda or anything else, but what I say about it is easily verifiable. In Canada, in the early to mid 20th century, there emerged the United Church of Canada. If any of you are Canadians, you might have some familiarity with the United Church up there. The Congregationalist denomination, the Methodists of Canada, and some Presbyterians, not all cooperated, came into this. Union, United Church, looks great. Let's bring them all together. They're all pretty similar. People were told we can be governed under one structure, carry one name. We don't all need to be separate. Sounded like a noble idea, but uh, it failed pretty miserably. The United Church of Canada today is largely made up of congregations that are desperately struggling. Many of them have long ago closed. Others are trying to hold their doors open, trying somehow to hold on to people. Why is that? Well, I don't libel these people unfairly when I tell you that the problem with the United Church of Canada is that the prevailing theology has always been weak as dishwater liberalism. They do not emphasize a supernatural Bible, an authoritative word of God, and they try to go for some least common denominator way of holding on to Christianity without the cutting-edge doctrines of the Scripture. And their joining of several denominations has left them today a, a mere shadow of what they were when the original union came together. We believe the unity Jesus was praying for His church to experience in John seventeen twenty one was an organic spiritual unity based on biblical doctrinal essentials that would give the very life of Christ as Jesus was saying that I am in them and, Father, You are in them. The authority of Scripture is their theme song. The Apostles' Creed and its doctrines are things that they can agree on, and they don't have to say, well, you know, I'm not so big on this Holy Spirit thing, or I'm not so sure about that bodily resurrection thing, but let's just be tolerant and we'll agree to disagree. Well, there are times when you cannot agree to disagree if the disagreement is over fundamental doctrine of the Word of God. I often have this discussion with our new members, and I allude to our sanctuary that they can picture in their mind. And I say, look, there are eight pillars holding up our balcony in this room where we are right now. And each of those pillars, you may not know, has a steel beam down the middle of it. And if you took any of them away, believe me, the folks up there would be sitting on top of the folks down here. You can't take away the main key supports. And there's not an issue of exercising tolerance when you are talking about fundamental matters of truth. I would salute, and I'm glad to publicly salute, our brethren in the Mennonite Church of the USA who have said recently after prayer and struggle and and much examination of their consciences and of Scripture, we cannot be united with unbiblical doctrines of homosexuality and gay marriage. We must separate. I recognize, brethren, in this county who have done that, and they deserve God's commendation. There are times when tolerance can't stretch anymore. Now, we can differ over things, of course. Can we differ over whether a a Christian should be in the military? Can we differ over how much water should be used in baptism or whether a believer's child should be baptized? Can we differ over the kind of music, the style of music that we must have in worship? Oh, my goodness, Christians can kill each other over that one. We can differ over some things that are not pillars. They are secondary matters, but we must not give up the pillars. We cannot differ on the divinity of Christ. We cannot differ on His substitutionary atonement, His bodily resurrection, mankind's fallen condition, the authoritative infallible nature of the Word of God. These things cannot be compromised upon if we would say we have unity. Now, I would put before you an example of real unity, and I have to do it with somewhat a humble state because it involves our own denomination. So it will seem, ah, he's praising his denomination and maybe saying something bad about another one. You'll have to judge for yourself In June of 1982, I was very privileged as a member, a minister of the Presbyterian Church in America, a denomination that then was only nine years old, which had separated in 1973 from the larger Presbyterian body over issues where separation had to happen because truth was at stake. We were in Grand Rapids, Michigan, for our General Assembly, meeting at the same time there, as another Presbyterian body of conservative nature. We were the second-largest denomination as the PCA that we call it, and their meeting at the same time at Calvin College in Grand Rapids was the third-largest Presbyterian body, the Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod. This congregation, by the way, in this little history lesson, was part of that Reformed Presbyterian Church at that time. In a joint assembly, we came there with previous intent and much discussion and much prayer to say, Why are we apart? We are together on all the essentials. We are together in spirit. We're even together on just about every secondary issue you can think of. Why, other than the accidents of history, are we apart? And I was deeply moved to know I was present at something historic. The day I watched men from the Reformed Presbyterian Church, Evangelical Synod, vote, and each man stood and said aye or nay, overwhelmingly "I," to say, we will give up our name. We will actually give up our college, our seminary. We will come together into the Presbyterian Church in America because God wants us to be one. I cried. I'm not ashamed to tell you. I cried because you don't see that. Give me another example where that has happened of a uniting of Christian bodies over truth, who then went forward and God brought increase, brought growth, brought church planting, brought vitality, so that we are three times the size today that we were in 1982. That's not self-serving praise. That's saying glory to God when true unity can be seen in this world. It so often is not. In the Apostles' Creed and in the Nicene Creed, both that we use today, we say, I believe in one holy Catholic church. The most asked question about the Apostles' Creed by people who aren't used to it is, what's this Catholic thing doing in there? I'm not a Catholic. Well, you may not be a capital C Roman Catholic, but you are a small c Catholic, meaning if you are Christ's, you belong to his universal church. That's all the word means. The church that crosses denominational boundaries, the saved people of God who are called sometimes a holy commonwealth, governed by King Jesus. We sometimes call it the invisible church. Not that you can't be seen, but the fact that it it's comes under many labels. And there are those in every denomination who are truly Christ's and those who are not his, who are only nominal, who don't really believe the things that unite us in Jesus Christ. Well, I have to leave this point, but let it be clear here that Jesus was praying that we would avoid useless, unnecessary divisions. There are times we must divide if truth is at stake, if unity with Christ is at stake, if vital doctrine is at stake. But he said, let there be unity where there can be unity among God's people. Well, secondly, today, I bring you before verse 24 because I think it's the climactic verse of this entire prayer. Father, Jesus prayed, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I summarize this second point this way. Jesus prayed for us to arrive home with him in eternal glory. God made you and me to be glory seekers. In the Garden of Eden, he put his image in us and the scripture says, man walked with God in the fellowship of the garden. How quickly we lost that. Sin came, the fall came, and we no longer had that direct communion with our God, we believe that the Scripture is a story of us all the way through seeking to be restored to that position in fellowship with the glory of our God, craving that fellowship to be restored because we've been separated from that fellowship ever since the Garden of Eden. Have you ever thought about why the Bible never actually comes to some place, some chapter, some six or eight verses even that would depict, would paint an actual picture for you to anticipate what heaven looks like, what it's going to feel like, look like, you know, what's the scenery, what's the landscape, what what kind of dwelling will I have, what will my occupation be? People have a hard time conceiving of heaven, and therefore they give way to these silly ideas that we're angels sitting around waiting for choir practice to start or something. Instead of living in vital union with our Savior in meaningful activity, meaningful relationships in, in a state where there is no pain, no crying, no hospitals, no police stations, no armies because they're not needed. Heaven is a real place, but the Bible only gives us a few symbolic pictures with streets of gold, which that's not meant to be literal. That's meant to tell you that that heaven is a place of such splendor that a common street material is what we call the most splendid material on this earth. It's a symbolic description. So uh, earlier I was saying about these 400-some souls who I have had a role to guide through the last time of their life that people gave praise to God and their Savior as they were put in the earth. Where are they? Some of you know I wrote a book called What Happens to Me After I Die. So maybe you need the whole book, but you don't need the whole book. To tell you in a few words, where are we when we die? We are with Christ forever. With Christ forever is enough description of heaven. It's all we need. Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 said, What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined, God has prepared this for those who love him. It's there. It's real. And you will experience it. Two brothers of this congregation who worshiped with us here within the last few weeks are there with Christ forever. Forever experiencing it. Now, there is no earthly travelogue. I can't point you to… Who's the gentleman on TV that does all these travel programs? Anthony Bourdain, I think the name is. I've only watched it a few times. But he travels to places all over the earth and shows you, you know, here's, here's Hong Kong or here's something else that you've never seen. And you learn about that place. What's it like? What does it look like? What do people do? How do they eat? Well, there isn't anything like that for heaven. There isn't any PowerPoint presentation that can bring heaven into focus for you. But there is this promise, this vocabulary, which comes as a kind of language of love from Jesus Christ. He said, do you want to know what I really want in the ultimate sense for every believer? I want them to be with me forever to behold my glory. That vocabulary occurs many times. i just give you a few examples. John 14.3, he said, I will come again and take you to be with me. He didn't give you a GPS address to enter into your phone to find heaven. He said, I'll take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. Luke 23.43, he said to a thief on the cross, a broken man, who suddenly, in the midst of dying alongside Jesus, said, Lord, remember me when you come to your kingdom. He didn't say, oh, let me tell you about my kingdom. No, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Philippians 1.23 has Paul saying, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, better than anything. Paul wasn't suicidal. He was saying, life is good. My life, my relationship with you is a great thing. I wish it would go on and on. But to depart and be with Christ is better by far. 2 Corinthians 5.8, the same Paul says, we are confident and we prefer to be absent from this body and present with the Lord. Yesterday afternoon, I drove away from the cemetery after the graveside service for John Byler. A little tiny cemetery in a little tiny, out of the way Lebanon County town where you'd need careful directions to even find the place. And I thought to myself, you know, this isn't much of a very impressive place. You looked at sort of the backside of houses with their trash cans out and facing the cemetery. It wasn't really a beautiful setting, quite frankly. But I was thinking John isn't looking at the backside of houses or trash cans. (laughs) He's looking at his Savior. Glory to God. We can rest content with this description that if Christ is there, the fullness of his glory is there, and what more do we need to know about our final destination than that? A Puritan writer said heaven consists in the perfect immediate presence of Christ. He said, right now, all of Christ is not with us and all of us is not yet with him. But he said, it's certainly promised. The dead in Christ have already fulfilled a prophecy from Isaiah 33, verse 17, which says in the Old Testament, your eyes will see the king in his beauty and view a land that stretches afar. John said that in a letter he wrote, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him even as he is. And this same John wrote another book besides his gospel and his first epistle. God gave him the book of Revelation, that marvelous, mysterious, unusual book. And I would just point you to Revelation 5 to go read on your own. It's a window into the interior of heavenly glory that the dead in Christ are already experiencing. John saw a vision of of a ruler on a throne, obviously representing God, The ruler held a scroll, and it was a sealed scroll. And there was great mystery and great trouble in the minds of everybody who beheld this because they wanted to see the scroll open because it implies there that it has on it the names, the identity of those who will be in eternity. But they couldn't be open. And everyone was distressed. Who's going to open the scroll? Well, then appears in this vision a lamb looking like it had been slain. And the Lamb comes forward, and suddenly a tremendous chorus arises. In two weeks, we're going to sing the Hallelujah Chorus, a hundred strong out of that balcony as you join us on the Sunday before Christmas. Let me tell you, that is like a two-year-old singing a solo compared to what Revelation 5 tells us. Sorry, choir. My apologies to you. I don't have to apologize for this. Revelation 5 is a thunderous chorus from all the created beings in heaven and the angels and the saints who are there and they shout out to the Lamb, you are worthy to take the scroll for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and nation. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Do you have the slightest bit of longing in your heart to join in that chorus yourself someday? I do. I long for that day. The words, with me forever, are Christ's promise to his church. And the death of every true Christian is one more answer to this prayer of Jesus here in John 17, 24. In fact… Many of the commentators say this about verse 24 that that might criticize perhaps that the English wording doesn't quite capture what he's saying. Father, I desire. I would like it. No, he's saying something much stronger. It's more like, Father, I will it that those who are mine throughout the ages will be with me in glory. And my will and yours are one on this, Father. And so every last one of those the Father has given into the charge of Jesus Christ to bring home will come home with him forever. Samuel Rutherford was a colorful man from the Puritan age who had a burning desire of love for Christ. He wrote this. He said, Oh, my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without Thee, that would be a hell. And if I would be in hell, your presence would make even that a true heaven for me, for thou art all the heaven I want. Samuel Rutherford, wonderful man of God. Do you believe Jesus Christ is God's true son who laid aside visible glory to be born in the straw there in Bethlehem? Do you believe he suffered and died in order that your sins would fall upon him who was innocent and his righteousness would be transferred to you who were guilty? Do you believe he rose again to inherit a new and glorified body in which both those wounds of the cross and his feet and his hands remain visible in heaven today and they're part of what is called his glory? if you trust in those truths from God's completely true Word, you can be confident you will see your Savior. If the Bible does not guarantee anything else, it guarantees that. You will be with Him forever. It's not a hope or a speculation. It's a certainty with Him forever. And you will be like Him, transformed by that glory that you behold. I hope you go from this place knowing this wonderful promise awaits you, being with Christ forever. There's nothing greater in all the world to look forward to. Our Father, thank you for him who thought to pray for us when his great hour of his own suffering and passion was right ahead of him. Thank you for this language he gave us as a gift, that we could be with him forever. Thank you for the saints. And if we take all the ones who have died in Christ known to this congregation, they are thousands swelling the ranks of those who sing praise to the Lamb today. Father, give us a lively hope that in this Christmas when we await his coming in a manger, we also remember the destination he settled for those who believe. We ask these things in Jesus name. Amen.